Bibles. That's where we are continuing on in our series that we began uh, about four weeks ago. And uh, we have three more Sundays in it. First Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 is where we are this morning. We are in chapter 3. And so as you open your Bibles and uh, get ready here, let me begin with the following story that was published in Reader's Digest. It says, a three-day retreat for pastors and their wives. One session consisted of testimonies about how the Lord had blessed our lives and ministries. And so one young preacher's wife stood up and began nervously sharing the Bible promises. No good thing does the Lord withhold from them that walk uprightly. Well, she said sincerely, my husband is one of those no good things. I thought that was funny. All right, guess not. Well, wise, I don't know if your husband is one of those no good things or not from God, but here's what I do know, and it's in the, your notes there, and that is every wife hopes her husband will change for the better. That's a universal reality, and the reason this is a universal reality is because every husband needs to change for the better. There's no denying it. Every husband has room to grow. Every husband needs to become more like Christ. Uh, I know that's true for myself, and I'm sure every man here would say the same thing. Yeah, there are some areas in my life, if I'm truly honest with myself, I would have to admit there are areas in my life where I need to change and become more like Christ. So when it comes to husbands changing for the better, some wives will verbalize this to their husbands. Other wives will just keep this hope as a secret. But most wives have given up on this hope altogether. So here's the question. What's a wife to do about that? Wives, how do you go about influencing your husband to Christ-like change? And do it without creating an atmosphere of animosity within your marriage? That's the question we want to answer as we continue in our series here, The Sojourner's Guide to a Hostile World. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice Peter's challenge. And this challenge specifically is to women sojourners here in the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Notice it in your notes, the, Peter's challenge. And that is to live as women of hope in your marriage. To live as women of hope in your marriage. Wives, this is the key to your husband's changing for the better. This is the key to influencing your husband to Christ-like change. And we see this challenge here in verse 5. I'm going to read it out of the English Standard Version translation. Look what it says. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, here's the question. Who are these women? These holy women, as Peter calls them. Uh, these were holy women in the Old Testament. And that word holy, it just simply means they were set apart. Set apart from something and set apart to God. And so they're holy women in the Old Testament that Peter's referring to. But I want you to see is that what really set these women apart 
that Peter is emphasizing here is their hope in what? Or in who? God. These were holy women of the Old Testament who put their hope in God. And Peter sets them up as an example for us here today. And this is the key. If you miss this, you miss the essence of what Peter's trying to communicate and why he's saying what he's saying here. So we can define women of hope as women who hope in God in their marriage. Wives, let me ask you, does this describe you? Are you a woman who puts your hope in God in your marriage? As we're going to see, this means women of hope do not put their hope in their husbands. They do not put their hope in uh, her looks as a wife or even what the culture says. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you're supposed to act. Here's how you're supposed to respond. Rather, she puts her hope in God. And she focuses on the power of God in her marriage. Now, uh, wives, you might be wondering, okay, you're, you're, you seem to be addressing just wives here this morning. And you're right. Uh, we'll get to the husbands in a couple of weeks, okay? So us guys, uh, just, you know, I hope you come back in two weeks so you can hear Peter's message to you and to myself. And so uh, this morning, the focus on wives, and then Peter will take time and focus on the husbands. So wives, here's the challenge. If you hope to see your husband change for the better, then live as, quote, in the words of Peter, as these women of hope in your marriage. Now, let me just say, this is radical. This is very, very radical. Uh, It's contrary to, one, our human nature, and it's definitely contrary to our culture, what Peter's going to write to us here. And I'm sure most of you notice that Peter writes about this word. It starts with an S. It's the word that uh, most of us resist. It's the submission word. And perhaps even some wives are wishing you didn't come today. And I understand because we all resist this. We all resist submission. We talked about that. In fact, Peter begins this section. If you notice there in verse 1, look at it in your Bibles. He begins with the word likewise. That's the very first word in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, which means that this call of a wife's submission is part of a much larger call for all believers in Christ to submit to different authority structures. We've already seen some of those. And back in chapter 2, Peter calls us to be submissive to all civil authorities for the Lord's sake. We saw in, also in chapter 2 that Peter calls employees to submission in the workplace when he addresses household servants and tells them to be submissive to their masters, whether those masters or those employers are gracious or they're harsh. And now, here in chapter 3, Peter says, likewise, in addition to these two areas of of, of life and society and in the workplace, now he's going to venture into the area of marriage. And he says, likewise now, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Now, this is the part we really struggle with. Because when it comes to society, we're okay, I'll submit to civil authorities because if I don't, I might get put in jail. So we're like willing to do that. 
Um, when it comes to the workplace, we'll submit to our bosses and employers because if I don't, I may get fired, I may lose a job, and I need money, I need my paycheck. But when it comes over to the area of marriage, that's where we tend to revolt. That's where we resist. And our culture says, that's fine, man. You'll see when we get to this. This is anti-culture here. So you got a biblical worldview versus a cultural worldview here that's going to clash with what we're going to find out what Peter says. And every wife and husband has to decide, what am I going to buy into here? What am I going to buy into when it comes to the truth? What's going what's to govern my belief system and my thinking and my actions when it comes to my marriage? All right, so let's dig into it. Open your heart and mind to what God says. How to influence your husband to Christ-like change as a woman of hope. One principle is all we're going to look at this morning. And then next Sunday, we'll look at the second principle. The first principle is this. Abandon strategies that disappoint in influencing your husband to Christ-like change. Abandon strategies that disappoint. Now, wives, please listen to me. Don't miss this. And I, I, and I, I'm, I want you to know my heart is to say this with love, with concern, but also with passion and also from God's truth. And so please listen here. Don't miss this part. No matter how well-meaning you are as a wife, the natural way, and when I say the word natural way, that is the flesh, our, our sin nature. The natural way a woman goes about seeking to change a man is very destructive. And in the end, it brings nothing but disappointment. And I say that with love and concern. But the way that most wives go about wanting to create good is, in fact, the very path of destruction and disappointment in your marriage. In what you do at the moment when you are faced with your husband's need to change is absolutely critical to the future of your mar- marriage and even your marital joy. So, where do we turn then? Well, we need to turn to God's word for help and hope specifically here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And what we see right away is that there are these strategies that Paul kind of delves into that wives might be tempted to use to change their husbands, but in the end, these strategies disappoint. They don't work. In fact, they're, they're rather destructive to the marriage. You say, well, what are the strategies? Well, that's what we're going to dive into now for the next few minutes. Three strategies wives are tempted to use but disappoint. Number one, words. Words don't work in changing your husband. Words. Wives, let me say up front, you have incredible influence in your home. Guys, would you agree with that? That was pathetic. Thank you. Wives, you have incredible, incredible influence in your home on your husband and on your kids. Now, it is true 
You as a wife, you cannot guarantee that your home will go as it should, but you can guarantee that it won't by your actions and what you say. I'm reminded of the very graphic picture of Proverbs chapter 14, 1. And I put these verses in your, your notes there so you don't have to take time to look them up. And so just follow along here if you see this in your notes. Proverbs 14, 1. Look what it says. Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman is pulling it down with her own hands. So here's the question. So what can a wife do to pull down her home with her own hands? In, the, in, the, in, in Proverbs, you have to understand... The, the, when he writes, he's using symbolism, he's using metaphors, and using, he's using these, you know, imagery here. So it's like a wife pulling down her home. It's destructive. And so what are some things a wife might do that pulls down and destroys her home? And we could say it might be some things that in Peter's, what he delves in, is saying some things that you say. Notice what God says in 1 Peter 3, 1. Look at it. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, notice a couple of key things in this verse. The word in the phrase, even if some do not obey the word, is referring to the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ. This means that the husband who does not obey the word of God is not persuaded. It's referring to an unbeliever. All right. This is an unbeliever in the context of what Peter's writing about. So the most important change that needs to take place that needs to happen to this particular husband in the context of First Peter is that he needs to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He needs to embrace the gospel. He needs to tune in to the fact that God wants to save him and change him. And some wives here, maybe you know exactly what that's like because you're married to an unsaved husband. And your ultimate desire is to see your husband come to Christ above and beyond any other thing because all other changes follow after that. Now, this is the context of Peter's day. He's writing to Christian wives, wives who are believers in Christ, who are married to unsaved husbands. And primarily, he's thinking about those cases where, here's the, in the case of, of what's going on here in this first book of 1 Peter, where you have a husband and a wife, and they're married. And most of the time, they were unbelievers when they got married. But the Gospels come in. The Gospels, the seeds of the Gospel were sown. And the wife responds to the Gospel. She believes. And now she's a Christ follower. But her husband has yet to respond. Has yet to believe the Gospel. In Peter's day, when a wife became a Christian, the potential difficulty was much greater than it was if the husband first became a believer since a wife in Peter's day was expected to profess the religion of her husband and as you might imagine as the gospel spread across the Roman Empire in the first century this was a big issue this is why Peter's writing about this he's dealing with an issue for Christ followers in his day and so he's writing to this wives who were in a marriage where they, they got married and they were both unbelievers, but the wife gets saved. 
but the husband's still lost. He's still an unbeliever. So what's a wife to do? How should she, you know, live within this arrangement with her marriage? Peter's dealing with that. Now, that's the context, but the application still holds true for a marriage where you have a believing spouse. Both spouses are believers. Okay, so we can make application of influencing your husband to Christ like change, too. So what can you do in the context of Peter here to lead your husband to Christ? And God first tells us what not to do, wives. He deals with the negative. Here's what not to do in influencing your husband to Christ like change. Or if you're married to an unbeliever in influencing your husband to accept the gospel and to believe Christ. Isn't it interesting that the very next phrase says they speaking of husbands without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, wives, do you understand what God is saying here? He's saying even where the most dramatic change is needed. In this case, the husband needs to come to Christ. And so even where the most dramatic change is needed, the wife impacts her husband best in this context, in this situation, without a word. And that just hits you like a ton of bricks. Without a word. This means without talk or without a lot of speaking. Wives who badger, wives who preach at their husbands only drive them further from the Lord. So instead, of, instead, Peter's saying, listen, wives, your silent witness has tremendous power and influence. Certainly, this is not saying, read into this, it's not saying that a wife should not communicate with her husband even about the things of the lord peter's not saying that but wives listen your impact is best made by your actions and not your words why because in this case peter's saying words don't work in changing your husband and that's true whether you're trying to change an unsaved husband or a saved husband Listen to what God says in Proverbs 9, verse 13. It says, a foolish woman is clamorous. And that word clamorous is like pots and pans banging together. In other words, the Proverbs here is just is, is making the analogy that a foolish woman makes a lot of noise. But the rest of the verse says she's simple and knows nothing. In other words, she doesn't know how to go about changing her husband. She doesn't realize that her words are the very thing that hinders what she really desires in her heart. Proverbs 21, 9 says, It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. If a woman is contentious, what is usually the subject on the table? And the number one answer is the stuff their husbands need need to change. What he needs to be, what he should work on, what our life could be like if he would only. And it gets worse because later on in the same chapter of Proverbs 21, verse 19, it says, It's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 27, 15 says, A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. 
as you ponder these verses. Here's, here's kind of a summary. Here's the essence of what they're saying. And if I can be blunt here. Nagging will drive your husband crazy. But it won't drive him to Christ. It'll drive him crazy, but not to Christ. You can't nag a man into the kingdom of God. You will either scare him off or you will make him angry. So what then is God saying? What he's saying is words alone don't work in changing your husband or in influencing him to Christ-like change. Here's the reality of it. I mean, here's why. The reality is there's something in a woman's sinfulness that provokes her to, and if I can use the word, to nag. Just like there is something in men's sinfulness that provokes him to neglect. This is a sin thing that goes all the way back to the curse with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Men, because of our sin nature, we neglect. That's our weakness area. And women nag. Men neglect. They neglect their husband roles, their father roles, their role as the leader and spiritual leader in the home. And when we're not submissive to the Lord, this is we are weak in our area. We neglect, we neglect our responsibility and role. While women, their sin nature propels them or they tend to nag. And they both destroy the very thing we are trying to establish. And that is a marriage. Families that are filled with joy. Families that glorify God. Listen to what Proverbs 12.4 says. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Wives, as sensitively as I can say this, there is nothing that will destroy the fabric of your marriage faster than shaming your husband with what you say to him. Nothing is so destructive to your marriage as the things you say that pull him down and cause him to see that you don't respect him and you don't think highly of his strengths and instead you are focused on all his weaknesses. And yes, Every guy in every marriage has weaknesses to focus on. You may truly love your husband, but your attempts to change him with words are shaming him. And God says it's like rottenness in his bones. So as lovingly as I know how, please listen when God says that words don't work in influencing your husband to Christ-like change. Their second strategy that perhaps women seek to use, and that is beauty. Beauty won't last as a strategy to change your husband. Look at verse 3 here. Again, we're in chapter 3, verse 3, and notice what Peter says. He says, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or of putting on fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. 
God is saying here through Peter that if you want to influence your husband to Christ-like change, beauty is not the lasting solution. This word adorning that Peter uses, it's actually the Greek word cosmos from where we get our English word. What do you think? Cosmetics. And it means to put in order or to arrange. And every woman here knows what this means as you spent time this morning, quote, arranging yourself, right, ladies? You you stood in front of the bathroom mirror and you arranged yourself. Guys do the same thing. Obviously, now, what Peter's doing, he's drawing a contrast between two different types of beauty. He's drawing a contrast between external beauty and inner beauty. And in the Greco-Roman culture, women were devoted to this superficial adornment or external beauty. And our culture today is no different as our culture puts nearly all of its emphasis on which type of beauty? Yeah, the external. You got it. This is the world's view of beauty. It's based on your external appearance. Why? Because when you're empty on the inside, you will focus on the external. When you have nothing to offer from the inside, then you focus on what the external is. Actress Holly Berry said, Beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a, quote, beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life, no heartache, no trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless, and it is always transitory. In other words, what she's saying is it won't last. Peter's point for women of hope is don't let the thing that makes you a beautiful woman be external. Don't let your crowning feature, your outstanding beauty mark, be something that can be seen on the outside. Don't let that be the major thing. And then Peter gives some examples of all this. He says, like, the arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Now, Peter, don't, don't, again, listen. Peter's not saying these things are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, and they're evil, and you should avoid all of it. He's not saying that. He's saying that these things uh, 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 focus on all the external only. Those are not the lasting way to your husband's heart. So don't let those things be the thing that makes you a beautiful woman. Now, if I can say this to parents of teenagers, both guys and girls, this is a great lesson to teach your teens. Both from the girl standpoint of here's what true beauty is in the eyes of the Lord. And guys, here's what to look for in a woman when it comes to getting married. This is so important. And the reason Peter brings this up is because in verse 4, it implies external beauty is what? It's corruptible. It's corruptible. It's not going to last. And so now Peter draws out the logic of that. And he says, listen, if you're counting on beauty 
alone to influence your husband somewhere down the calendar, that influence is going to what? It's going to fade. It's going to go away. And when it fades, you will no longer be able to influence your husband in any significant way by your external beauty because it's faded away. And if you have not developed inner beauty of the heart, your influence with your family, kids and husband, it's gone. Um, If I can just share personally here. as most of you know, my wife, her name is Darla. And we've been married now 27 years. And, uh, and there's no denying it. What first attracted me to her was her external beauty, at least in my eyes. I saw, I was like, man, she's drop-dead gorgeous. I got to talk to this lady. And, uh, but once I began to talk with her, we began to date a little bit, I quickly realized what made her really beautiful was her internal beauty, her character, the inner beauty of the heart. Um, I tried to explain this even to my boys last year. We went on a ski trip. and went, For those of you that have never been skiing, you have a lot of downtime in the sense when you're riding up ski lifts and even in a gondola where you're kind of closed in. And it can be anywhere from a 10 to 12-minute ride all the way to the top of the mountain. And so we... We were in this gondola, and we, it was just me and my two boys. And, uh, and so we started talking about this. And they think, oh, Dad, I can't believe you. you know. And I said, listen, just listen to me. I want to share with you, here's what, here's what I saw in your mother. Here's why I love your mother. Here's why. Here's what attracted me to her. And here's what this means for you guys. And it's the inner beauty of the heart. This is what makes a woman truly attractive. It's what makes you want people want to be around you. Uh, you can get a guy without her beauty, but you keep a guy with inner beauty. And it's your inner beauty that God uses to influence your husband to change. The inner beauty of the heart is what we need to develop more. Peter's not saying just forget about external beauty. He's not saying just let yourself go. No, he's not saying that. So don't read into that. Don't go to extremes here in that regard. So, you know, women, it's okay to arrange yourself, look your best, do what you can, and guys, too, for that matter. You know, don't be slobs. But what's most important in influencing your husband and your family and your home is the inner beauty of the heart. And that's, that's why when I look at my wife, it's her inner beauty. In fact, here's something, um, and I was sharing this with my boys, too. Um, you know, if, if women, or in this case, high school girls, college girls, are only being complimented, when, when they, somebody speaks of them and they're only complimented for their external beauty and nothing else ever, that's, that's a telltale sign of something. Why, why is that woman, or this teen girl, or this college why is nobody ever talking and complimenting something about the, what lasts forever? The her character. And again, try to tell my boys, just being honest with them. I mean, because in this day and age in our culture, girls that kind of flaunt it, and you know what I mean by that? They wear suggestive clothing, whatever. The reason they emphasize what they do is because they don't have anything on the inside. 
Parents, this is what we need to teach our children with a little bit. It's the inner beauty that lasts. It's the inner beauty that counts and makes a difference. So here's another strategy to use in changing your husband that disappoints. Why? Because God says beauty won't last. There's one last strategy that is prevalent in our culture that we must abandon as women of hope, and that is liberation. Liberation can't deliver as a strategy to change your husband. Notice what it says in verses 5 and 6. Peter writes, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, our culture rallies around a much different strategy than what Peter writes in these verses. The strategy of liberation basically says this. It's twofold. It says, demand your rights as a woman. That's the first thing it says. The second thing it says is to discard God's roles for husbands and wives. But liberation is a strategy that can't deliver when it comes to seeing your husband change for the better. Demanding your rights and discarding God's roles is a recipe for disaster within the home. The women's lib, as sometimes it's called, or the feminist movement, wants you to believe liberation is the secret to your fulfillment as a woman and wife. So what is feminism? Let me... Quickly, let me give you a definition here. Dwayne Lipton defines feminism in this way. The term feminism denotes those who wish to eliminate all gender-based roles in society, up to and often including roles that are purely biological in nature. Anatomy is not destiny, goes the slogan. Feminist icon Gloria Steinem. How many have heard of her? Yeah. She says, women's live movement is far from over. She says this in a speech at Texas Tech University. We have realized women can do what men can do, but we have not realized men can do what women can do. So many women have two jobs, one outside the home and one inside the home. And until men are equal in the home, women can't be equal outside the home. And she goes on to say, men, women, and their families lose When they submit to gender roles. But God's word says just the opposite. Men, women, and their families lose when we don't submit to gender roles that God has outlined in his word. One way we lose is there's now a greater confusion in the home than ever before. Wives are discontent, husbands are frustrated, and children are confounded because the biblical functions of men and women, husbands and wives, are no longer clear. Roles and responsibilities. And when biblical roles are not clear, then husbands don't know how to act as husbands and fathers, and women don't know what their responsibilities are as wives and mothers. So no wonder one pastor says this. It is a great sadness that in our modern society, even in the church, the different and complementary roles of biblical headship for the husband and biblical submission for the wife are despised or simply passed over. 
Some people just write them off as sub-Christian cultural leftovers from the first century. And this is why, as believers in Jesus Christ, as sojourners who are living in this hostile world, as women of hope, we must continue to submit to God's word. Now, when Peter writes this, when Peter writes that wives should be submissive to their husbands, he's appealing to something. He's appealing to God's created order that goes way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that you should, we should be familiar with that because we just studied it. So he's taken us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the roles that God established for a husband and wife in creation. The Bible is clear that in the beginning, God created man and woman, equal in personhood, diverse in expression. This divine pattern for headship and submission in marriage is then further explained by the Apostle Paul in places like Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so, wives, the question is, what are you going to put your hope in? What our culture says? Or what God says in His Word? Demanding your rights... And discarding God's role is not the answer. The strategy of liberation does not deliver fulfillment. It will deliver disappointment. Now, what's interesting here, fascinating even, is when Peter went looking for a woman who found fulfillment in her role as a wife and mother. She chose Sarah the wife of Abraham. Now, Sarah did not have it easy. In the beginning, Abraham was no prize. Here's a guy who shows up and says, come on, honey, get packed, we're moving. And Sarah's like, where are we going? Abraham says, I don't have a clue. God just said we're going. Okay, well, when we get to the edge of town, are we going to turn left or right? And Abraham says, I don't know, just get packed. And you begin to read through Genesis and the story of Abraham, and you see what this woman went through. Now, Sarah made mistakes along the way. Abraham and Sarah were both flawed people, just like all of us here. But be encouraged, ladies. Although Sarah didn't have it all together, she is a shining example of a woman of hope who influenced her husband for the better. And so when Peter says that Sarah called Abraham Lord, He's not suggesting that you now go home and start calling your husband's Lord. He's not suggesting that. This term, Lord, is a term of deep and abiding respect. In other words, when Sarah calls Abraham Lord, she is showing that she respects Abraham as the head of the home and was willing to follow him even as when God didn't even lay out all the plans exactly. I'm willing to follow. Wherever God leads, wherever you lead, I will go. I respect you. So what Peter is suggesting, in fact, even commanding, is that wives follow the example of Sarah and be submissive to their husbands. And the cry of most wives is, but you don't know my husband. So how is this possible, especially when you're married to a husband who needs to change for the better? And the answer is found all the way back in the beginning in our challenge as women of hope. 
in your marriage. Here's the bottom line question. Are you willing to put your hope in God and abandon these three strategies that disappoint? Do you remember what Peter said about Jesus in chapter 2? You go back to chapter 2, verse 21, and Peter says this, For to this you were called. And now, in this phrase, he's, he's speaking about all of us here, men and women, Christ followers. To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then Peter tells us in verse 23 that Jesus, when he was living here on this earth, when he's going through all this, that he committed himself to God who judges righteously. In other words, Jesus put his hope in God. This is what Sarah did, and this is what Peter implores us to do as well. And this is what the holy women in the Old Testament did. And so, wives, are you willing to do what Jesus did? He set the example. Are you willing to follow in his steps and commit yourself and your marriage to God? Are you willing to put your hope in God and live as a woman of hope? Not hope in your beauty, not hope in your words, not hope in feminism, but hope in God. And what God says for you in your marriage, in your role and responsibility. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for our time together. Lord, a difficult passage, a difficult subject, and yet I ask that you would make our hearts tender to receive it, to ponder it, to meditate on it, and to embrace it. That we would see your truth is for our benefit as sojourners here in this world. And so, Lord, let every woman leave here as a woman of hope who is putting their hope in you and you alone. We ask this in your name.